and I've already told Nathan I may cut into his time. <laughs> so, which meant he said, well, it means I, I will cut into everyone's lunch time. <laughs> so, so if, you're, if you want to be ready to eat, we need to get started. Um, last week we talked about um, covering for Andy back into Romans. And, you know, we talked about imputed righteousness. So I talked about in, imputed righteousness versus infused righteousness. And, and we went through all of that. We, how, how was how Abraham righteous? made righteous uh, we, we talked a whole lot about that I think I sort of kind of remember where we stopped last week so I'll try to pick up there uh, but before we do does anybody remember something I brought up last week at the end where's Ryan Ryan's not back in here yet anyway we, we talked about Abraham remember Abraham came out of Mesopotamia where he worshipped pagan gods, uh, the moon god especially. If you, you can go do a search on Mesopotamia, you know, pagan, ancient pagan Mesopotamian gods, and you'll get this list of them. Sin or Suen, S-U-E-N, um, was one of them. He was kind of the, um, a, a moon god, but he was sort of the head of the pantheon of, of in, in that mythology. Um, and so it's likely that Abraham, that's probably what he was doing when God called him out of Ur, which is over in, let's just say, Babylon, present-day Iraq. When he called him out of Ur and sent him to a land that he would, a country that he would tell him about. And I said, I brought up, what's the oldest song in the world? Anybody remember that? And if you did, I don't, don't ask me how I get here. I was telling Wayne, sometimes I get off over here so as I'm studying, something will bring up, and I think, man, I wonder. Anyway, in looking up Ur and looking up Chaldees or Chaldean, looking up Babylon, looking up Mesopotamia, where, where Abraham was, and came out, and the Lord called him out of that. Anyway, I came up with the world's oldest song. And the world's oldest song is... Um, from a clay tablet found in northern Syria in the 1950s, it dates to around 1400 B.C., so about 3,400 years ago. Uh, remember that Abraham dates back to about 1700 B.C., only about a 300-year difference. Um, this clay tablet, which was about 60 to 70 percent intact when found, has what has what um, Assyriologists, if you will, from who studied this, um, said is probably a prayer uh, with music, set to music, to, a, to the Mesopotamian goddess Nikal, N-I-K-K-A-L. It's a hymn or a prayer with the words at the top of the tablet. Can you put up one, Trevor? The, at, the, at the top of the tablet, that's just a, and if you see a little line right there, not, not left to right, but there's a little line at the top where the words are at the top, and that's actually music at the bottom of that little line. Um, it is in the Hurrian language, which is now extinct. There are scholars and linguists that have translated this more or less and determined that this is a hymn or a prayer with music at the bottom to the pagan Mesopotamian god. I, I find it interesting as I do my studies that this oldest known song in the world is from the area and the region of Abraham or of the Chaldees. So this is what, uh, can you do two? Here's what, this, here's what the translation actually says, as, as best as they can tell. Okay, once, 
and these are the words in parentheses this is kind of this is their best guess once I have endeared the deity she will love me in her heart the offering the offer or offering I bring may wholly cover my sin uh, bringing sesame oil may work on my behalf in all my a may I and they don't know what else it says the sterile may they make fertile grain may they bring forth she the wife will bear what they believe to be children obviously to the father may she who has not yet born children bear them I think that's an interesting prayer that Abraham probably would have been exposed to these kinds of prayers that not not to the one true God but to his multitude of gods if you will his pantheon of gods I just found this very interesting that the Lord called him out of this and if you remember we talked about the what Jewish historians in the Midrash and the Talmud how they said this is how Abraham was called out he was worshiping he he knew that there there's all these different gods they would do these prayers and nothing would happen so Abraham just looked at creation looked at all the worthless gods he was serving and came to the conclusion that there is there there has to be one God there has to be only one God and and the the Jewish Historians, the scholars say, well, when he came to that conclusion, that's where God called him out. Okay, that may or may not be true. That's not biblical, but it's extra biblical. But it is the oral tradition and the oral writing and the, the written uh, history of, of the Jews that they used to trace back their father Abraham. I just find that interesting. Um, the other point I made was. Um, my point about this song is twofold. Going back to truly ancient times, we see mankind knowing of God, of a God of, he had a, he acknowledged there was a God or some sovereign outside of themselves, and they must do some work or offering to try to please this God or gods. Abraham, Abram was in the thick of this. Okay, he would have been. This is what he would have been exposed to. Um, the gods are always angry, unloving, and vindictive, and must be appeased. The true God is love and wants a relationship with us, and he provides the means of that reconciliation. And as you start thinking about all of these other gods and all of the religions we have today that are works-based compared to what the God of the universe, the God of the heavens has done, there is this vast difference. And I think as, at some point Abraham began to see this, and I can see that God understood that in Abraham's heart. Not that he counted that moment to, unto him as righteousness, but he said, I'm going to bring this man out of this pagan world, and I'm going to use him for my glory. Um, they know God, but do not worship him as God. God is evident to them in creation. All are without excuse. I think of this when I see this oldest song in the world. And I also think of God calling Abram out of this. Uh, what else did I close with last week? And we'll go quick as I can. You remember the term, word I used? No one had, no one had ever heard of it. But the idea has been around since the early 2000s, late 1990s. Neurotheology, N-E-U-R-O, neurotheology. It's hard to define this, so I won't get very too very far into it. I can't really do it. I don't know much about that much about it, and certainly not trained in either medicine, science, or theology uh, to get very far into it. Suffice to say that a book published by a fellow by the name of Dean Hamer in 2004. Now, Dean Hamer has this long list of degrees behind his name. 
Um, so he feels he knows whereof he speaks, and he may very well. But he wrote a book entitled The God Gene, How Faith is Hardwired into Our Genes. Uh, if you've never heard of this book, it, I wouldn't say go get it and read it unless you're ready for a kind of a scholarly book. It's, it's hard to, to follow when you don't know a lot about what he's talking about. But it's an interesting title, I think. Um, the book is in no way Christian, but it does cover many studies and investigations into religion and spirituality and the working of our brain. For instance, the changes in brain waves and neurotransmission during prayer or meditation. Of course, neurotheology has basic assumptions, as you would expect. Uh, it's, these are scientists, and even many of them are theologians, and they, evolution is the starting point for them. Okay? So you have to be careful when you read these books. Along with no scientific proof of God, they're not trying to prove God does or does not exist. They're trying to prove that there is a gene that leads towards spirituality. Okay? Um, Starting from there, I found scientists delving into this that will take the science, meaning that and you, they, you can have pictures when they do everything from MRIs to CAT scans and all this, the brain during prayer and meditation, even during uh, tr depression and tragedy and how people in their brain relate to that, how do they handle that? And you can see in the brain there are changes that show up in the brain, and that's where they come up. Is there a... Is there a gene? Is God hardwired into us somehow? And this is, this is where that approach is taking us today. Um, I think, again, I think it's interesting. Uh, starting from there, I found scientists delving into this will take the science and state the science. This is what's happening when we see the brain. And then they tried to wordsmith their conclusions so one is led away from what we read in Romans about God being evident to all and the heavens declaring his glory and sort of lumping everything into a, well, this is an evolutionary change. This is, this is, this, they're, now they're trying to figure out not that God is real, but evolution is real, and man's spirituality has somehow added to his survival. You, you see how science and mankind will see evidence of God and yet twist it and distort it to deny the truth of it, which we read in Romans. Again, neurotheology, I don't want to take a long time about it, but I think that, um, again, looking at this brings two things to light to reinforce what the Bible does tell us about it, ourselves. Number one, no man, man is without an excuse. Whether, he's, whether God has hard, hardwired himself into mankind or not, I'm less concerned about. Man can look at creation. Uh, the Bible says that the law is written on our hearts. Uh, man can see in creation. God makes himself evidence in creation. We, we see the creation and we didn't deny that, that there is a creator. That is where the first shortcoming <laughs> occurs and that's where take, Satan begins to take advantage of us. And, and from there, it's, it's downhill. Um, I'm not saying there is a God gene. I am saying that even scientific inquiry is leading to what we read in scripture. God does exist. He manifests himself in what he has made and man is accountable to him and is without excuse for ignoring or denying him. Anyway, it's just some information I found. Um, and the, the last part of the neurotheology, what they're looking at now, there's, and I did read some comments that said that 
a man has this desire to worship. How many of you have ever heard the, the, the idea of the thought that there's a God-shaped hole or a God-shaped vacuum in all of us and we will fill it with something? We've all heard that. Well, that's science is beginning to find that to be true. They just know there's a gap in there and they're trying to say, well, evolution, evolution has allowed us to fill that gap with something. Meditation, prayer, whatever. I mean, and again, they're not looking just distinctly at Christianity. They're looking at any kind of religion. My point is that we were made to worship. We were made to glorify something outside of ourselves. And science, even science is beginning to uncover that now. Uh, I just find that very, very interesting. I don't think God, God doesn't have to use science to prove himself. He did no vindication or anything like that. He said, he said the heavens declare my glory. That, that is sufficient for me. I think it becomes back to Abraham. That was sufficient for Abraham. And that's where we see things like our belief and our faith in things unseen and things we can't understand, that counts us, that, that's, that's what counts us righteous. I, I, I believe in heaven, but I've never been there. Okay, I believe in God of heaven, but I've never seen him. But I believe his, but he's left us his word and that alone is sufficient for me. I pray it is for you as well. So, just just some comments. I don't need to get. I don't want to get too far afield on that. But that's. A, I think that that's. Uh, as as Abraham looked at the pagan gods and the pagan gods he's worshipped, and he said, "What a waste of my time," and and I, I don't know that he said that, but I can sort of picture that as I sort of meditate and think about these things and contemplate history, plus what God tells me. Um. When we closed last week, I think we were somewhere around, um, in fact, I don't know where I was, but, uh, actually. But we, we, we got back to um, circumcision. I do know that. We, um, hold on, bear with me. You know what, let's just jump from here. Go to Genesis 15 if you want to open your Bible. Go to Genesis 15. 15, 6 um, says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Remember last week I went through my whole accounting spiel, uh, and we, we talked about accounting and reckon, uh, credited to, ascribed to. Okay, uh, If you read 15, 6, he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Here in this one sentence, we see the great summary of all believers of all time. Not of works, not of genealogy, not of skin color, national origin, language, mental capacity, physical handicap, education, not giving my body to be burned, not even jumping on a hand grenade to save my comrades will make me righteous. My belief in the Lord is accounted to me, reckoned to me as righteous. The Lord makes me right in his sight, not anything I can do. All I can ever do is at best make myself right in my own sight or perhaps in the sight of others. But that does not matter. I enter heaven on my own with no works attached. I come naked, wicked, dumb, and blind, believing that God through Christ is my only way to be right, to be reconciled to God, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Abraham and all Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. I look back to it. Salvation is found in no other, according to Acts 4.12, by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. You can continue reading uh, Genesis 15. 
um, always remembering verse 6 in chapter 16. We see Hagar and Ishmael. I won't spend a lot of time on here. You likely know the story. Suffice to know that even in Abraham's sins, a relation with his handmaid Hagar, a bad idea by uh, Sarah, but Abraham could have said no, but he said, you know, not, okay, let's, we, why, why trust God when I can maybe go do this myself? Uh, God blessed her son Ishmael with the promise of a great nation and many descendants, even in spite that this was, in our mind, a, a sinful relation, a, a civil, some sinful offspring, if you will. With all that is always going on in the Middle East and Israel, we could spend several weeks just going, working our way through Ishmael and Hagar. However, I will say that God does promise Abraham he will make Ishmael a nation of many descendants and bless him because Ishmael is still of Abraham's seed. Not because of anything inherent in Ishmael is he blessed, but because he is Abraham's seed. That's all we're told. Again, we see God sovereignly choosing to bless whom he will bless and who he will not bless. Chapter 17 is where Abram and his wife Sarai get their names chained. Though the meaning of the name Abram is a bit obscure, most information I found, it means the Father is exalted. I like, I like this one since I see God the Father being exalted through righteous Abram. In 17.5, God tells Abram he will henceforth be called Abraham, meaning multitude of nations or father of a multitude. And then in, right, right there in 17, we see the, the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jumping to verse 15, we see God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Sarai meaning, Sarai, the old name, uh, means princess, more or less from what we can tell. Again, this is a really, really old name. Remember, they came out of Mesopotamia. Um, Sarah today is still defined as princess. I guess Sarah. There's a, we have a Sarah in our midst. As princess, but more likely this very old name means woman of high rank or noble woman. It can also loosely be interpreted as happy, uh, perhaps due to her laughing out loud when she heard the angelic messengers tell her husband she would have a child. And Abraham also laughed at the news in 1717. Um, also, perhaps since God told them the son that they would have through Sarah and Abraham would be named Isaac, which means he will laugh or he will rejoice. Uh, God has his reasons for renaming them and looking at the best name meanings I can find, it makes sense given God's covenant plan with Abraham, father of many nations or father of a multitude. We see in chapter 17, 10 through 12, God tells Abraham he will circumcise himself and all his household, and that includes Ishmael. This is the sign of the covenant and relates forward to what we see in baptism. The reformers, a lot of covenant people today, a lot of Presbyterians take that circumcision and bring it right forward and say well that's what that's what baptism represents for us today i believe that 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 is that can i think that's a good good argument i can certainly see that um circumcision was a sign though between it was a covenant sign between god and abraham and all of the males uh, and it was not particularly public okay but baptism is a public profession of our faith, so there's a little bit different, a little bit difference there. But uh, many will say that baptism today is is our circumcision. But if you carry that forward, circumcision, I mean, baptism is not required of of, of a Christian. Um, the thief on the cross was not baptized. Um, I think it's extremely important to follow in in uh, the Lord, 
in, in his baptism, he set the example for us. And uh, John said, no, I, I can't. But he said, no, I, this must, to be fulfilled, for scripture to be fulfilled, this has to happen. Okay, this has to happen. So there's, there's more to that. That's, again, that's a whole other study to itself. Um, I won't go for any farther than that, except to say that Paul emphasizes that circumcision avails us nothing. It is the circumcision of the heart, a spiritual circumcision, not a physical one. Another argument Paul builds upon in Romans and in his other writings is that true circumcision, as Paul preaches in Romans 2.29, is that of the heart and is accomplished by the Spirit. In other words, a person today enters a covenant relationship with God not based on a physical act, but on the Spirit's work in the heart. Just as no physical act or good work can make us righteous, no physical act such as circumcision will either. It is God acting upon our heart and imputing Christ's righteousness to the redeemed, which makes us right, not anything we did. Now, this is a, a big struggle with the Jews, okay, because they, the Jews understood circumcision. They understood it was a covenant command to their father Abraham, um, and just like their ancestry, where they trace back to, to, their, to their father Abraham, they also use circumcision as further proof of their righteousness. See 17, 14, where the uncircumcised has broken the covenant in Genesis 17, 14. So the last thing a Jew in Paul's time would be want to be accused of breaking the covenant. Okay, he's basically separated himself. Um, what a struggle the Jews had and still have with us, just like their ancestry back to Abraham. They use circumcision as further proof of their righteousness. Um, Paul hammers away at this in his magnificent series of defenses and refutations in Romans where we've been spending months now with Andy and we'll go back into it. 1719, we find the promise of Isaac to Isaac. Uh, I mean, to Abraham of Isaac. Though God states he will bless Ishmael, he clearly states that the Abrahamic covenant will be established with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. In verse 22, we see God finished talking with Abraham and God went up from Abraham. I like that because it says that he came, he came down to speak directly to, in a theophany, came down directly to speak directly to Abraham and then he went up from Abraham. In verse 23, we see Abraham immediately obeying the Lord, circumcising every male. Again, we see Abraham didn't fully understand circumcision any more than he fully understood why you're telling me to get up and leave this country. But he just obeyed. So the next morning it says Abraham rose early. He got up earlier than usual to begin circumcising every male. I don't believe Abraham fully understood the covenant at that point except that he was simply obeying God. He was told to do something and he did it. Again, God ascribes this uh, that this obedience and this faith and this belief to him as righteousness. Abraham was often disobedient and obeyed just partially, yet God sees his belief in him and, quote, counts it unto him as righteousness. This circumcising of the males did nothing to make them righteous. It was Abraham's belief in God, in what God said, that makes him righteous. Moving to chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham continues. We see the narrative moves around a bit here in Genesis, and you really need to read it all again for yourselves as a refresher. Remember in this previous chapter in 15 God told Abraham he would give him a son here in 18 
in, here in, in, chapter, in chapter 18, we read the Lord appeared to Abraham again in a theophany. Uh, you've got to read chapter 18 carefully as it can get a tad complicated, at least it did for me. In this chapter, we see just how personal a relationship Abraham had with God. We read, quote, the Lord appeared to him. Uh, you don't see that a lot in Scripture, and when you do it, you, you should really wake up on this and find out when the Lord appears to a man and tells this man something, we would do well to know what went on and understand it. Okay? Abraham lifted his eyes and saw three men that day. The men turned out to be unusual guests, to say the least, and the visit was life-changing for Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 18, 1 and 2 says, quote, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He saw them something special, men at, at, uh, at, uh, at the level of Abraham, who we already know was rich in uh, cattle and gold and silver. They didn't, they didn't have a tendency to bow down to anyone who just appeared at their tent door, uh, but in this case he did, so he... he he saw something different in these, in, these, in, in, in these men. Abraham showed immediate hospitality to the three men, inviting them to rest under a tree and preparing a big meal for them, verses 3 through 8. During their visit with, the, with Abraham, the three men warned him that God's judgment was to, about to fall upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18, 20, and 21, and then over 19, 12 through 13. They also promised that Abraham's wife, Sarah, would have a baby by the same time next year. Genesis 18.10. In this one visit, Abraham was advised of some really life-changing events about to happen. For us, this kind of information would be overwhelming. At least it would be for me. I can't speak for the rest of you, but imagining you are nearing 100 years old and living peacefully in, say, Canton. You find out your wife, who is about 10 years younger than you, is pregnant with your first child. Right after this, you receive this news. You find out cities not far from you in a vast plain where your nephew lives are going to be destroyed. Not just those two cities, but all the, quote, cities of the, in the plain, along with every person, as well as what grew on the ground, Genesis 19, 24. And just another set of thoughts I lay out there for you when you're during your time of meditation and contemplation, reflecting on Scripture. Um, how, do I, how do I react when I get bad news or disconcerting news or a string of disconcerting pieces of information. Now, being, your wife being pregnant is a wonderful thing. We had four. Uh, so I was elated every time it happened. Uh, my, I don't have many regrets, but the only thing, I, if I look back, I would say I wish I had started earlier and had more. But, uh, that, uh, but I'm, at, I, I'm not 100 years old yet. But I don't know what kind of how I would take that news just yet. And, and as you read Abraham, both Abraham and Sarah thought, this, how can this be? Um, some have suggested that all three of these men in this, in this chapter were angelic beings who appeared to Abraham in the form of men. However, Genesis 18.1 says that it was the, the Lord. If you open to 18, it says it was the Lord, Yahweh who appeared to Abraham. It is the Lord who speaks in verses 13, 20, 26, and 33. Abraham stands before the Lord in verse 22. So one of the three men must have been God. Almighty taking on the appearance of a man. We call such an appearance a theophany. When Jesus appears in his pre-incarnate body in the Old Testament, we call it a Christophany. 
Now, whether God's appearance to Abraham in Mamre was a theophany or a Christophany, we don't know. But it does seem clear from the context that, that one of the visitors was God himself, Genesis 18:22, and the other two were the angels who, probably the angels who later visited Sodom and spoke to, uh, to uh, Lot in Genesis 19.1. My point is that the Bible tells us no man has seen God and lived, so God can't just come down as God, okay? We would be destroyed. He, he took on the form of a man. Abraham simply recognized them as some, some level of nobility. That's why he bowed down. He recognized these men as someone above them because if you're, if you're at this level and you encounter someone this level in these ancient times, you bowed. Not just bowed, you groveled. At, <laughs> he bent all the way down to the ground. Abraham's response to the appearance of the three men also suggests that he instinctively knew that he was in the presence of God. Again, a typical response to visitors in that culture was to rise and wait for them to approach the home. But Abraham ran to meet them and bowed low to the ground. A prostrate posture reserved for royalty or for deity okay remember Abraham was already accustomed in Ur to bowing before pagan gods now he recognized something different and he bowed low to the ground Abraham was well acquainted with the Lord would have instantly recognized him because the Lord has spoken and or appeared to him many times already those appearances just for instance when God first called Abraham in Genesis 12 1 and 3 when Abraham parted ways with Lot in Genesis 13, verses 14 and 17, possibly when he met Melchizedek in Genesis 14, when God made a covenant with him in Genesis 15, and when God restated his covenant in Genesis 17. So Abraham has, a, I mean, he's, he's had multiple encounters with God. The, these three visitors whom Abraham entertained were heavenly, and Abraham and Sarah were in the company of God himself. The story teaches us that God is aware of what is happening on earth and he is involved. Remember, this was in Abraham's time and not Moses' time. Though God does appear, though God does here and other passages appear to Abraham, he disguises himself. He clothes himself. In this case, in chapter 18, as I said, as a man. The Bible teaches us no man has seen God and lived, Exodus 33:20, and several other passages. Yet God did appear to men in the Bible, but always cloaked in some way, lest the might and power of his glory slay the man. Today, God speaks to us through his word. Anyway, you can read chapter 18, get the detail. Um, I will point out that in 1815, where Sarah says, I did not laugh, just as we read earlier that Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister in chapter 12 and getting Sarah to do the same, we find Sarah here again lying. Okay, I'll go jump back to chapter 12 quickly. We read in 12.10, there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt. I find it interesting that earlier, Abram had just packed up and moved from Haran when God told him to do so. Yet here we find him moving to Egypt with no instruction from the Lord at all. He just encountered a famine. And he's, I, th I just thought about this and wondered if this indicated a lack of trust by Abram at this point in God's provision for him in Canaan. Um, I read some commentaries, and yes, many comment that in this case, Abram was outside God's direction and not relying on God to provide for him through the famine. 
So Abram basically leaves Canaan without direction, ends up in Egypt, where he lies to Pharaoh and brings all sorts of plagues on Pharaoh and on Pharaoh's house. Uh, he created a, really a, a, a huge mess. Pharaoh has to run him out of Egypt. I'm still baffled, and I need to do more study on chapter 12 and 13, but anyway, I see Abram went to Egypt due to a famine, yet when Pharaoh runs him out of Egypt, I read in 13.2 that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So it sounds like he did well in Egypt. Um, anyway, it's not confusing to me to think as much as it is unclear. I try to think, what was Abram thinking? Remember, he had possessions when he left Ur and went to Haran and dwelt there. Then when he left Haran at the age of 75 in, 12, in chapter 12, verse 5, he took all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom he had acquired. So he had not only had money and livestock, but he had slaves and servants and that he had, he had acquired. So he had goods as well as servants. I keep thinking, did he not think he had enough to survive a famine in Canaan? And I guess he didn't. The real point for today is that we see in chapter 18, Sarah lying, which to me is a continuing sin that we first see back in chapter 12. Uh, back to jump back forward to chapter 18. Now let's go back and read this in detail and use some commentaries and research to find out more and better understand what is going on in chapter 18. It's not real easy, at least it wasn't for me, and I'm not a dumb person, but it gets, again, it's not confusing as it is sort of unclear. Um, chapter 18 and 19. Okay, stories you probably think you know this story well, and you may very well. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, chapters 18 and 19. These are not small cities, and note the destruction includes all the plain in chapter 19. The entire area is probably more like 10 miles by 10 miles, so probably more than 100 square miles. Likely more than 100 square miles, the entire area Lot had looked upon in chapter 13, which if you remember, he looked and he chose, he saw it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, a hearken back to the garden of Eden. He said, man, I, know, I wasn't, he's, Lot is thinking, man, I wasn't there, but this is really, really wonderful. So he took the choice land. The entire area Lot had looked upon in chapter 13, well watered everywhere, uh, this whole land that Lot saw and Lot chose was about to be destroyed. I looked it up and said, I looked in the counties of, uh, of Georgia uh, just to see, is there a comparison that I could use if, if, we, if Sodom and Gomorrah, we had an area that was destroyed here and that we could maybe see it from here. You know, you look out and you say, okay. Uh, I, the closest I could come was Clark County, Georgia, where Athens is. Uh, and... Um, the Bulldogs and Sanford Stadium and all those places. You remember it, Lynn, from the old days. But, uh, and I thought, imagine that whole place being destroyed, wiped out. I mean, it would, I mean, the, everybody, every, every fraternity house and all the fraternity brothers, every sorority house and all the sorority brothers, every professor, every building. Um, there's a big oak tree out in front of the administration building because University of Georgia is, uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, the oldest uh, congressionally commissioned university in the, in the United States. Um, all that's destroyed. The people, the buildings, the tr everything, everything. And if you looked out and looked over in Athens, it would be that way. You looked out in that way and all you see is just the smoke coming up from the ground. 
this is what this is what happened just to kind of give you an idea so it was not a small event by any means um, it's a the ground was so wasted and so vast, we read in 1927 and 28 that Abraham looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. This vast area came right up to the edge of Canaan where Abraham lived and he could see the smoke from the ground like that of a furnace, we read in the Bible. Anyway, it's quite a story of just how much God hates wickedness, specifically the unnatural wickedness of homosexuality. Sodomy as the Bible calls it. In our day and time, we would do well to do a thorough study of this from the Bible to try to grasp God's view, lest we fall prey to the view of this wickedness that the world is now taking on. Um, if you want to know another, go back to the book of Samuel, where Samuel hacks Agag to pieces, as the King James tells us. And you've got to ask, why did, why did he hack, literally, Agag to pieces? Uh, can you imagine taking a sword and hacking someone to pieces in front in, uh, as, as, a, as a public display? Uh, I mean, imagine just being chopped up. I mean, there's a lot of blood, body parts, flesh, skin flying everywhere. And yet God says this was the thing to do. It's a, it's, it's a view of God's view of how much he hates sin and he hacks it to pieces. He will hack it to pieces in your life. Thankfully, he does not destroy us that way. But he will, for his children, uh, he will discipline you. And it could be uh, uh, hacking to pieces in, in a way. But anyway, that's an aside. Continuing chapter 18, we see Abraham boldly going before the Lord and almost challenges him. I love this one. You've probably heard this too. Suppose 50 righteous men. We find 50 righteous. Then he goes to 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, and he goes down to 10. And I'm thinking, jeepers, creepers, Abraham. First off, you're pretty bold. Secondly, God is saying, just look, yeah, find me 10. I mean, because he loves us and he's long-suffering and he puts up with people so long. I, when we used to do, uh, in fact, Mark and I did some counsel with some of the same people, but you talk to people, these men who have been in jail and in prison and in, in addiction, and I've had more than one of them kind of come up with the excuse, so why, why did God destroy Pharaoh and all of the army just right out of the blue like that? He said, it wasn't out of the blue. Well, the ten plagues before, God was long-suffering and patient with Pharaoh and said, do this, do this, do this. So he's not just a willy-nilly guy who just destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for, uh, for no reason. He didn't destroy the, the, the Pharaoh's army for no reason and let the, uh, just all of a sudden on a, on a whim. No, he had been long-suffering with them just like he is with us. But not even 10 righteous men could be found throughout this vast area. We just talked, it's over 100 square miles. God destroys it all in chapter 8, 19, yet he saves Lot and his daughters out of all of this. Lot, remember, chose this area, and back in chapter 12, we read, Lot pinched his tent as far as Sodom. So Lot moved into this wicked city, wicked city and yet God saves him out of the judgment. Why? Anyone know why? What made Lot deserve this deliverance? Anyway, it was for Abraham's sake. Okay. You, you should be, maybe in chapter 19, familiar with the details. If you are not, please read chapter 19. All this information about men, both old and young, as well as, quote, all the people. Um, you really need to know what God is telling us here. 
this is not some casual story from the Old Testament that has no relevance for us today. This is where the men of, the, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, they, even after they were blinded, they were still after these, who, the, the angels who came down and said, let us bring those men out, Lot, so that we, can have, so that we may know them. And if you know about knowing in, in the scriptures, it means to have sexual relations. Um, so it's not some casual story that's just out there. This, is, this story is in the detail is there for our, for our edification, for our knowledge, for our growth, for our literally prosperity before the Lord in terms of serving him. This is not some casual story. God has given us the de this detail because he wants us to know who he is and what he values and what he deems pure and what he deems to be right. He gives us this, this to us so that we know how to live before him. Look at 1912 where the angels tell Lot to get out and take his family with him. Lot begs the angel to work out other arrangements for him in verses 18 through 22. We still see Lot escape. Anyway, Lot is another story, a biography, if you will, along with Noah in itself. Well, maybe one day when Andy gives me a little more time, we'll do a study of the patriarchs. That, this is, I mean, that's a phenomenal study right there. Uh, I mean, these, these guys, we, we, uh, they, listen, they were wonderful and used by God. But you talk about sinful lives. It, there, there was a lot there. I find it interesting that the patriots were just men. Study them and you will find sin, very wicked sin, yet they were righteous. It is quite a study. Sinners yet righteous, how can that be? Moral in Abraham in verse 20. Here we go again. We see Abraham and Sarah co-schemers in a lie of chapter 20. We are not told why Abraham travels south but we have already seen that he does move around the land of Canaan. <clears throat> anyway, he moves south and ends up in Gerar, which is a city near Egypt on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It is about 10 miles below the present-day city of Gaza, which you probably heard a lot about. We see Abraham telling Sarah to say again, she is my sister. This is partially true. She is his half-sister. The point here is that Abraham was not depending on God for protection, you can read the details. God came to Abimelech in a dream and tells him he is a dead man for taking another man's wife. I think there's a strong allusion here to God's view of two things. Number one, marriage, and number two, adultery. In this narrative, I see Abimelech really a more virtuous man than Abraham. Yet I also read that God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet and his prayers will work in favor of Abimelech. Even Abimelech realizes how Abraham has been set apart by God. He realizes Abraham is special in some way. Yet in this story, we see God uses Abimelech to issue a strong rebuke to Abraham. You can look in um, 20 uh, verses 9 and 10. Abraham moves his great household from the region around Mamre south toward the border of the land of Canaan. We're, we're not told the reason for this move. They settle in Gerar between Kadesh and Shur. Gerar was south of Gaza. Uh, again, into the Mediterranean coast, within, and, but still within the borders of the Promised Land. Abraham traveled often throughout all of Canaan during his lifetime. The events of this chapter echo those of, chapter, of Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham succumbed to fear during his travels. There, Abraham lied about being married to Sarah. We see the same thing here, resulting in her being taken by the ruling Pharaoh as a wife. Only after God's intervention was a, intervention was a situation resolved. Here, strangely, Abraham seems to make exactly the same fearful mistake. Rather than simply acting in faith and being honest, Abraham and Sarah once again try to scheme their way towards a goal. And as happened in other cases, the scheme backfires. 
It should be reassuring to us that even in our distress and often in our outright disobedience and lack of attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit, God still works things for good. I don't know or even why, the how or even why, but I know that all things do work together for good, and this is an example of that in action. Abimelech sends Abraham away loaded with riches, opens up his entire land to him, and pays off Sarah by giving her a thousand pieces of silver just to compensate her for anything that may have happened, even though we read that nothing happened because God restrained Abimelech. That thousand pieces of silver, listen, pieces and silver. That's another study <laughs> that we could do just to figure it out because think about pieces and think about silver and how what an impact that has in the Old Testament and then fast forward to the New Testament. When I tell you 30 pieces of silver, that has that that rings even to non the non-Christian world. That that's a term that that is known. Okay. But a thousand pieces of silver, that would be about eleven thousand six hundred dollars today. How do you know that, Jeff? Because I looked up the value of silver per ounce yesterday and it was twenty-three dollars and thirty-nine cents an ounce. And uh, a, a piece of silver was about half an ounce. point two 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 grains, grams. You're, did you learn measurements and all in at tech? Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, mine was even longer ago than that. But anyway, this payment was to compensate her in some way for the shame, embarrassment she had may, may have suffered by the experience. I read this and think only God could have made this mess come out right, to be honest. Abimelech and all the females in his household were blessed. That's another interesting read. No one had, they had not had any children at all. And, 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 and God blesses Abimelech. In Genesis 21, we see the child promised to Abraham and Sarah being born, Isaac. Abraham obeyed God and circumcised Isaac when he was eight days old. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. More of that in chapter 21. And then we read again Hagar and Ishmael in the covenant with Abimelech. Chapter 22, we find that, quote, God tested Abraham as we read in verse 1. Uh, this, of course, is the well-known story of Abraham taking his son, his only son, there's a relevance there. Uh, see verse 2, and offer him as a burnt offering. The next day, Abraham got up early to do exactly what God had instructed him to do. More obedience by Abraham, even up to sacrificing his only son. And I just wrote in my notes, what faith with an exclamation point. Um, now we're seeing how this faith and belief in God could actually be accounted to him, to reckon to him, imputed to him as righteousness, even in spite of all of Abraham's sin and shortcomings. We read in verse 7, we read the first words recorded that Isaac spoke, asking, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I just find that kind of interesting that the first thing that we read Isaac said is, where's the lamb for an offering? Then in verse 8, Abraham's answer, which is the answer for the ages, really. The answer to every sin, every pain, every bout of depression, every family breakdown, every war, every argument, everything in man's life that goes against a holy God, the answer is God will provide for himself the lamb. Jump over to John 1.29 and again in verse in John 1.36. Behold the lamb of God. In Genesis, God provided a ram for the offering knowing now that Abraham had passed the test set for him in Genesis 22.1. Just as God provided in the Old Testament, he provides in the New Testament. John tells us who that lamb is. 
uh, Christians, we know it was and is Christ. Abraham believed God and looked forward. We believe God and look backward. I'm going to try to draw to a close. Yeah, I got to. With Sarah in Genesis 23, she dies at the age of 127. Your Bible may have a comment. She's the only woman in Scripture. We are told her age at the time of death. The story of Genesis leaps forward several decades by the time we get to 23, probably about 20 years. It's likely been 20 years or so since Abraham prepared to offer Isaac on the altar. It's been about 35 years since we last saw Sarah, insisting that Hagar and Ishmael be sent away. Now, Sarah has died at the age of 127. That would make Abraham 137 and Isaac about 37, uh, Genesis 17, 17. We find them living in Hebron near the familiar area of Mamre, about 20 miles south of what would become Jerusalem. After Abraham mourned for his wife, he approaches the Hittite people of the area with a request, and this is important as you follow. These Hittites would be the descendants of Noah's grandson, Canaan, uh, Cain, making them part of the original Canaanites. Abraham comes before an assembled group of Hittite landowners, um, probably at the city gate of Hebron. Abraham presents himself to them as a stranger, a foreigner, and a sojourner in 23. A stranger and a sojourner in, I think that's 23.4. Abraham describes himself in a proverbial phrase as one whose origin is foreign. I'm not from this country, and we already know that, and whose period of residence is uncertain. The same phrase is employed by Peter in 1 Peter 2.11, where he refers to us as sojourners and pilgrims to describe the shortness and uncertainty of life on earth and to indicate that, the tr that our true citizenship is in heaven. The stranger in the Hebrew in this passage belongs to the phraseology of nomad life, moving around, and the sojourner of a settled life. So Abraham is pleading with the Hittites to, for a place to bury his wife that I'm, a, I'm new here, but I want to purchase property so that I become a landowner. Now, now, follow this because this is all part of God's plan of giving him the promised land. Remember, so far, he's just been kind of wandering aimlessly. He requests that they give him a piece of property to use as a burial place. Their response is gracious. They knew Abraham well. They call him a prince of God among them. Abraham was a farmer, but he was also quite wealthy and clearly blessed by God in all that he did. The Hittites of the area seem to have regarded him as a friend in Genesis 23, 3 through 6. In fact, the Hittites offer Abraham the choice of any of their own tombs to bury his dead. Another interesting comment, they're looking for a place to bury, uh, but historically over in Mesopotamia, they burned uh, their dead. Um, Abraham, however, wants something more specific. He wants to establish a permanent family burial place of his own in the land of Canaan. He no longer wants to be just a foreigner. He wants to plant roots there, if you will. He wants to acquire a piece of property that will be, belong to him and him alone. Um, once the Hittites state that they are willing to, for Abraham to bury his dead in the region, Abraham reveals he has a specific property in mind. He says, I want that one. He singles out, singles out Ephron, son of Zohar, and asks uh, ask of him to purchase a cave uh, of his at, that, that, that's at uh, Mac, Mac, Machpelah. And you can read a negotiation of sorts takes place. Um, Ephron offers to give the cave to Abraham along with the field attached to it. Abraham insists, though, on paying for it so there can be no future dispute about who owns it. And this is, for me, this is important. Abraham wants to own land in the promised land. 
Uh, Ephron dismissively mentions a price of 400 shekels, which is actually not that much for this much land. Uh, for the cave and the field, Abraham immediately agrees, paying out the price on the spot and in full view of the assembled Hittites. Very quickly, the transaction is concluded and signed off on by the Hittite elders. That's in 23, 7 through 18. Abraham buries his wife Sarah in the cave. He now owns in the promised land of Canaan. Later, Abraham himself will be buried there. Now you talk, you're leading toward, toward some permanency of, of the promised land being owned by Abraham and his descendants. Later, Abraham, Abraham himself will be buried there. Then Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah all buried there. Without a battle of any kind, the people of God have begun their occupation of the land God has promised to give to Abraham's offspring way back at the beginning. Okay. Abraham now owns land out in public view that God had promised him decades ago. Okay. He's a permanent resident as a landowner. I would say I'm going to close. In fact, you know what? I really will. Close. We have spent two weeks on Abraham. He is mentioned in Scripture almost 300 times. He is the father of the faith, father of the Jews. Both Christians and Jews refer to him as Father Abraham. I've spent all this time on him to allow us to better understand Romans and our imputed righteousness. I have pointed out Abraham's sins, his shortcomings, and his outright disobedience to God. We have also seen his faithfulness to God, his immediate and unquestioning obedience in offering up his only son as a sacrifice. Abraham was a man, a human being made in God's image just like us. Still, even before the cross, he was redeemed righteous, not through works of righteousness he had done, but only by faith. His belief in the one true God and what he said is what made him righteous. It was a free gift from God to Abraham. Abraham, his life, his, his disobedience, his obedience, his redemption from the paganism he was born into, to his belief in and faithfulness to the, the God of heaven serves as an example to us, I think. Perhaps in another lesson we can go through the other patriarchs, but uh, for now, as Andy takes us back into Romans, try to bear in mind some of the things we've learned about Abraham the last two weeks. When we read of him and hear his name in a sermon, let's reflect that he, like us, is righteous not within himself or by any good deed or work he has done, but solely because God provided the lamb for the offering. That lamb is Christ. The perfect righteousness of the perfect lamb is imputed to us at salvation, and God sees us as right in his sight based solely on that. And you know what? It is after nine. Nathan, I don't know about you. I think I did a pretty good job on timing. <laughs> so I only burned up to three minutes of, of Nathan's time. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll be ready for, for our worship service. Heavenly Father, uh, your word humbles us, Lord, just reading about it. Thank you that we can look at Genesis, and we, then we can look at Romans, and we can go back to Genesis, and we can jump all the way to Revelation. And how how cohesive it is and how it all holds together. If we'll just study it and open our minds and hearts to you and your word, Father, and let the Holy Spirit illumine and enlighten us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning where we had an opportunity to study it now, to bless the rest of the service and the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.